Good morning. The reading for today is John chapter 18, verse 38b through John chapter 19, verse 1. After Pilate had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I can tell from a few of the responses in the crowd that this is not the first time you've seen this clip, and it has nothing to do with the sermon today, Uh, but it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I thought it'd be fun to watch some football. Um, Pastor Frank said this is actually the first time in 22 years that he has not preached on uh, Super Bowl Sunday which is amazing. Uh, He's here, uh, but he'll be leaving a little bit early today, actually, as God would have it, to celebrate a man getting out of prison, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you are stuck with me. And it does actually, that clip does have something to do with our sermon. There's always a reason. Um, We are... It is it, That clip right there, if you don't know the story, many of you did, but if you don't know the story, it's a story about uh, Rudy, who uh, tried for four years to try to get on the football team and get into a game, and finally, at the last possible moment, he gets substituted in and makes a, 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 an incredible sack, and uh, that is one of the greatest substitutions in football history in movies that, about fake football. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. Today's sermon is called The Great Substitution, and it's in John chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, you can 
you can check that out. We're going to look at this substitution that Jesus has made on our behalf, and in particular, in this passage, in the place of Barabbas, a prisoner. Uh, my name is Tyler Thompson. I'm the pastor of Communities and Worship here at Redemption Arcadia, and would love to meet you if I haven't been able to thus far. Uh, but we are looking John chapter 18, and just so you know, we spend our time going through books of the Bible uh, here at Redemption Church, and uh, we have a preaching collective where the 10 preachers that will be preaching in 10 congregations go through a passage together, share notes, and so we looked at this passage about a week and a half ago on Wednesday morning. Growing up, uh, my family had two kinds of movies that we watched in our household. We watched sports movies, and we watched musicals, and uh, I liked both of those, and uh, Rudy certainly qualified for the first one, but there was another movie that we would watch uh, that was a combination of a sports movie and a musical, and it was called The Darn Yankees. Well, it was actually called something else, but my sister and I would call it The Darn Yankees because we didn't want to have to put any money in the swear jar. And so we watched this movie, The Darn Yankees, and The Darn Yankees was about a fan of baseball who wanted so badly to be a baseball player that he made a deal with the devil to become a baseball player. How many of you have seen that movie? Yeah, a few of you. And so he made a deal with the devil, and indeed he became a baseball player, but he learns that making a deal with the devil always comes at a cost. It costs the devil nothing, but it costs you everything. And so this baseball player made a deal with the devil and he actually succeeded in such a way. And that's all over our stories. We see that in, in many of our stories. Things like um, Dr. Faust. Uh, we see, see that in, with Mephistopheles and Dr. Faust. The Little Mermaid, if you remember that, where Ariel trades her freedom for something that she wants. And so we learn this, that when we make a deal with the devil, it means we give up our freedom for something that we want. And we contrast that with the gift of salvation, which is that Jesus gives up his life so that we can be free. And that's the, the motto of our story, or the main point of our, of our passage today is, is that. And if you take nothing else from this, know that when we make deals with the devil, we give up our freedom. And yet, we, we choose to do that because we, there are things in this life that we want bad enough to give up our freedom. And the flip side of that is that Christ gave himself up, cost him everything so that we might live freely in and through him. If you turn in your Bibles, John chapter 18, verse, we'll start at 38. Ben read, through, uh, read at uh, 18b, but we'll start right at the beginning of 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? The him there is Jesus. And uh, Pastor Frank and Pastor Luke Simmons did a great job last week covering this uh, idea of Jesus as the embodiment of truth. And if you didn't catch that, you can catch it on our YouTube channel still. It was a wonderful conversation of dueling pastors up here last week. And one of the main points that they made there is that when we talk about truth, uh, Jesus is the embodiment and the truth. It's not that he is sort of just picking up pieces of truth off of the shelf and sort of presenting them to us or giving them to us. Rather, it's that he is the truth, that he embodies it in such a way that everything that he says and does is, is a revelation of truth to us. And that he offers that to us as a way 
of revealing to us how we might embody the truth as well with Christ in us. Pilate, when he asks what is truth, he has no real intention of finding out the answer to his question. And we know that because immediately after he asks the question, what is truth, he turns and goes outside and talks to the religious leaders, or what Frank calls the perps, the professional religious people. And so Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? That word truth is aletheia in Greek. My daughter has a friend whose name is aletheia. That word means divine truth or real teaching in religion. It means something that is the opposite of illusion or things that just fade away. It is indeed a fact. And so when Pilate is saying what is truth, he's not actually interested in the answer. He's saying there is no such thing as divine truth. There is no such thing as absolute truth. He's mocking the way, the truth, and the life. And certainly we understand what it's like to live in a culture where that is the prevailing question. What is truth? We live our lives as though there is no such thing. And Pilate is no exception to this. He asks you this question and then he turns and he, after he had said this in verse 38, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Now that word Jews there is referring to these religious leaders, the people in the crowd who have brought Jesus to Pilate, hoping that Pilate would convict Jesus. But Pilate finds no cause for accusation. Clearly, Jesus has lived the kind of life that we are instructed and invited to live as Christians, that we would be blameless and without fault or without accusation. He's done this perfectly in a way that we never could, but Christ himself has come under accusation, and Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. It's important to note that when Pilate walks back out to the, the leaders, he is not giving them a verdict that they are hoping for. Rather, the perps, the professional religious people, are intending for a guilty charge for Jesus. The reason that they're, uh, they're hoping for this is because Jesus has gotten in the way of their own kingdom. That the hopes and the dreams that they have for their power and their control and the kingdom that they've established for themselves has been flipped upside down by this Jesus who lives a different kind of life altogether. That instead of grasping for power, Christ has given up his power. Instead of seeking first to win, Christ has willingly lost on our behalf. That he has this upside-down kingdom to offer, and it gets in the way of the religious establishment that is there. And so the religious leaders have hoped for Jesus, his conviction, but Pilate comes and says, I find no guilt in him. There's an interesting thing here where neither Pilate nor the religious leaders with the Jews want to be the ones who are guilty of convicting Jesus. And yet Jesus goes to his death. It's another, uh, it's another observation here that Jesus willingly gives himself up for our sake. That no one takes, Jesus will say, 
Jesus had said, no one will take my life from me, but I lay it down on their behalf. And so Pilate brings them to the religious leaders and says, I find no guilt. And then verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now that's an interesting word, custom. The word has the connotation that they are intimately familiar with this act. It's something that they have repeated. It's, it's used elsewhere in, the, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians about actually repeated sacrifice to an idol. That there's a substitution that they're used to, to making and that they do this year after year. That the, that the Jewish leaders have instituted a custom that would act as substitution ongoing. And of course, none of these substitutions would would mount up to anything close to what we see here in the great substitution of Jesus. But Pilate says, you have a custom of doing this, of releasing one man, and his hope is actually that they would choose to release Jesus. Because Pilate doesn't feel real great about convicting a man that he finds no guilt in. His hope is actually here that the Jewish people would have an opportunity to release Jesus at this point. Now, why is it important that this is happening at the Passover? Well, this has been covered uh, ad nauseum. That this tradition of recalling what Jesus did during the exodus from Egypt, that there was a sacrifice of blood spilled and, and painted over the doorways so that God would pass over those households with his judgment. That the blood of the animal would cover the sin of the house in such a way that they would walk free. That Jesus is being handed over for crucifixion at this time is no accident, but rather that he has become the ultimate sacrifice for the sin of the world. Hallelujah is right. And so Pilate says to the people, you have this custom that I would release one man. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again in verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a a robber. And so the religious leaders, and we find out from the other gospel accounts that the religious leaders are actually walking through the crowd, inciting the crowd to cry out for Barabbas instead. That's actually noted in, in in the gospel account of Mark. That it wasn't just that the crowd wanted Barabbas released, but that the religious leaders were stoking the crowd, encouraging the crowd to cry for Barabbas to be released. Now, why would that be the case? Well, the religious leaders actually put more hope in Barabbas than they did in Jesus. They actually would prefer that Barabbas would be released than Jesus would. The message that Barabbas had was actually more palatable to religious leaders than Jesus' message. Why would that be? Well, we know from this passage that Barabbas was a robber. But the other gospel accounts call him an insurrectionist. Someone who actually took into their own hands the overflow, the overthrow of the government. Barabbas was a person who was 
said to have murdered, who was said to have uh, been a part of an attempted overthrow of the government. This is fascinating to me, that the Jewish leaders in choosing Barabbas would rather a savior who takes something into their own hands to overthrow the government than a man who would give up his life for the sake of the world. That name Barabbas means son of the father, which is a fascinating substitute as well. That here we have an imitation son of the father, traded out, substituted out for Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And so the crowd and the religious leaders make this deal with not the devil, but Pilate, that Barabbas would be released. They want so badly for their agenda in this area, in their agenda with this government, their agenda with their kingdom, they want so badly for that to go their way that they make a deal to give up the Son of God so that this insurrectionist might go free. Now, I pause for just a moment to to note that this is something that we do fairly consistently in our lives. That we make little deals with the devil all the time for the sake of things that we want. That we want so badly the things of this world that we're willing to put the needs of ourselves or our desires ahead of God and what God wants for us pretty consistently. Or am I the only one? Hey, we got an honest crowd here. It's good. We make these little deals with the devil all the time where we surrender our freedom for what it is that we have to have. And that goes all the way back to the garden where there is one, literally one tree that they can't eat from. And that's the one we want. And yet we trade our freedom for the hopes that we can have what it is that we want. Certainly our desires reveal to us what we believe as true. And our desires reveal to us what is closest to our heart. Or as James K.A. Smith will say, we are what we love. We have these opportunities daily to trade up our freedom to get what we want. And in the storybooks, that never goes well. If you think of those stories that we mentioned earlier with the Little Mermaid and the darn Yankees and Faust, it never goes well to make a deal with the devil. And yet we do it. How do we know that the people in this crowd are condemned and have lost their freedom as a result of this choice? Acts chapter 3, 14 Peter actually is saying this, why does this surprise you? You asked for Barabbas to be released and you killed the holy and the righteous one. Peter's pulling no punches here. You killed the holy and the righteous one. And thus, we make decisions in our own lives where we trade our freedom for the sake of things that we want. And we are thus guilty of killing the holy and the righteous. I remember the first time that I recognized in my life that, that Jesus' death was on me. And I wept. And I wept. The recognition 
that I had contributed to the death of Jesus. Scripturally, that's the case for each one of us. That once death and sin entered the world, all humanity was stained. And certainly, I am not just bearing the brunt of my great-grandfather and grandmother, Adam and Eve, for their decisions. It's not just that, because I know I reinforce that problem each day of my life. And so we all thus are guilty of Jesus' death. In this passage, Jesus is the innocent prisoner. In verse 38, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. He is the great substitute. In verse 40, we're trading out Barabbas for Jesus. And he is the sacrificial lamb. As Ben read earlier in verse 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That Jesus was these things. But these truths don't actually hold a lot of power for us until we recognize another truth. That truth is that we are Barabbas. Now, you knew that was coming, I'm sure. That Jesus trades his life for us. And that in this story, we are Barabbas. That we are substituted for, for the Son of God. But oftentimes, we don't identify with Barabbas in the way that the Scripture actually intends for us to. All four Gospel accounts tell this story. Now, that's awesome because there are many miracles, there are many events of Jesus' life where, where, where all four gospel accounts don't cover this story. But for some reason, all four gospel accounts intend for us to hear this story of Barabbas being released for Jesus. And I think the reason is that we would identify. Remember, all the gospel writers are, at, are writing to different, uh, for different purposes to different people. But the writers of each of the gospel accounts want the people they are writing to to understand this truth here that Jesus Christ become the great substitute for us. And so we are Barabbas. We are Barabbas in that we faced a penalty of death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And just like Barabbas faced this penalty of death, we too face a penalty of death as the wages of our sin. We are Barabbas in that we were released without merit. Barabbas had no reason to get out of prison. He, had no, he hadn't uh, had good behavior and so he's released early. Rather, he was released without merit based on the substitution of Jesus. And so the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, says Romans 6.23. We'll finish that verse there. We're like Barabbas in that. We're also like Barabbas in that we are permanently freed. John 10, 28 says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my So this release of Barabbas was not a temporary thing, but was a permanent, a permanent decision. In many ways we are like Barabbas, but especially in that we face this penalty of death we cannot be freed based on our own merit and that we are permanently free. 
Now, many of you right now are, are, are thinking, objecting to this, we're like Barabbas. You say, I'm no, I'm no insurrectionist. You say, I'm no robber. But part of the point about Barabbas being released is that Jesus has offered himself up for the person regardless of who they are, regardless of what they have done, and regardless of their choice to be released. You didn't see Pilate in this look at Barabbas and say, okay, would you like to be released? Barabbas was just released based on what had been given in the substitution of Jesus. And so we mess this substitution up all kinds of ways. One of the ways we mess this up is we say, clearly, I'm not that bad. I'm not like that guy over there. Now, if we'll see how honest this crowd really is. How many of you have had a thought that was like that at some point in your life? At least I'm not like that guy. Hey, you guys are still honest. This is amazing. Yeah. Oftentimes, we compare ourselves to others in this. We mess this up all the time by saying, I'm not that bad. I have what I have, at least I haven't done that. And so many of us fall into that category with how we mess this up, that we think, of our, think to ourselves, at least we're not that bad. And if I'm not that bad, then I don't really need Jesus, do I? But clearly, the scripture has for us an intention, as all four gospel writers tell us this story, has the intention that we would see ourselves in Barabbas. Uh, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Barabbas was accused of at least three crimes. Theft in John 18.40, insurrection in Mark 15.7, and murder in Mark 15.7. You and I may fairly take our stand by the side of Barabbas. We have robbed God of his glory. We have been seditious traitors against the government of heaven. And if he who hateth his brother be a murderer, we also have been guilty of that sin. Isn't that convicting? that we might think to ourselves, clearly we're not that bad. But the truth is that our hearts have wandered far from what God has for us. And we too are guilty of these three crimes. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. One little thing, guilty of the breaking the whole thing. It's an important thing for us to keep our minds on the next times that we think about that little white lie or that little thought late at night that nobody will ever know about or just that little cutting of the corner that God has for us in mind a holiness that we daily mess up. And also Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The next time that one of us thinks, clearly I'm not like that guy, we should keep in mind that any missing of the target puts a blemish on our holiness in comparison to the holy and righteous one. 
that we worship? What if Barabbas had said, no thanks, I'm good, I don't need your help? Maybe Barabbas himself thought, clearly I'm not that bad. (laughs) But Barabbas was in need of a savior just like the rest of us. We also mess this up by saying, I am that bad. And clearly Jesus could never love me or die for me. Now how many of you have ever felt that way? Yeah. It's a little harder to admit that one sometimes. Sometimes it's hard for us to admit that we don't feel particularly lovable by God or by anybody else. And so some of us are on the flip side of that equation where we think to ourselves, no, I am that bad, and I can't believe that there would be a God who could ever love me. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Hallelujah is right. That in the moments that we feel most unlovable, there's an opportunity for us to rely on this love of God who loves us and gives himself up for us despite our worth, our merit, or our lovability. That there is a God who would sacrifice himself for us. Romans 5.20 says this, by the way, for those of us who think that we are that bad, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That means that if you have been the worst of sinners, which Paul calls himself, there is even more opportunity for God's grace to abound in you. And so this gospel call goes out to all people who would hear. What if Barabbas had said, no thanks, Jesus, I'm not worthy of your time. And yet Barabbas himself needed to be released. We mess this up also once we've sort of thought, well, if the more the grace, the more that I sin, the more grace abounds, then we mess this up by saying, it doesn't matter what I do. I have a get out of jail free card. How many of you play Monopoly? That was my favorite part of the game. I, got a, I used to stock up on get-out-of-jail-free cards. Weren't there like two or three in the deck? I, liked, I, I wanted to hold them on. I wanted to hold them for just those moments that I had to go to jail and get out for free. Even in, even in Monopoly, we have this pointing to getting out without merit. But sometimes Christians think that once Jesus has come into my life, I'm going to heaven, I can't lose my salvation, well, it doesn't matter what I do. And Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What if Barabbas had thought, all right, now that, I'm in, now that I'm out, I can go right back to my insurrectionist, murdering, thieving ways. And we don't know, maybe he did. But it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, so let's not return back to a yoke of slavery. We mess this up all the time in our lives where we we accept the grace of Jesus and then we think that the little things that we do or the large things that we do don't matter. 
Romans 6.4 says this, What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness. What good news that Jesus has freed us to a new way of life where we don't have to be in our chains any longer. And we sing about this truth all the time. My chains are gone. I've been set free. And yet those little deals with the devil just keep coming up every day. Where there's something in this life that we want. And so we make a little trade, hoping that no one will know about it, that it won't get in the way too much. But before we know it, those little trades add up to a lack of freedom in our lives. In our men's Bible study the other day, we talked about that, how oftentimes with addiction, you don't know you're an addict until it's too late. That one little step leads to a second little step and a third little step. And pretty soon, those steps aren't so little anymore and they've taken you a long way away. Oftentimes, we don't know that we're in slavery until it's too late. And so that's a word of caution for us, those that have been set free and released because of the substitution of Jesus, is that may we not take little steps back to prison. We also mess this up by saying that it's all up to us now. That now that I've been set free, I have to keep on working in such a way that will maintain my freedom. That's sort of the opposite of saying, well, I can do whatever I want. But the devil's crafty. The devil knows how to steer us towards one of those extremes. I'm either going to be over here thinking that I can live however I want, or I'm going to be over here thinking that I have to follow the law to a T. Or else I've messed it up again. Somewhere in the middle is this Jesus who frees us up by his sacrifice and then walks with us in this life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Not, about, not a result of works, but we are his workmanship. That's one of the great paradoxes in Scripture. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think we have an opportunity in our freedom to understand that Christ has prepared for us this newness of life in which we live. That we wouldn't return to slavery but we would also walk in such a manner that is befitting of the sacrifice of Christ. There's one last way that I want to share with us that we mess this up. And it's this idea that when Christ was making his sacrifice, that he thought of me above all. There are times that that gets sung in Christian churches, and if you'll notice, we've never sung that here. Because much of our worship leaders have agreed on the fact that we don't, we don't appreciate the way that that song sort of ends with Jesus' thoughts on me. 
above all. It elevates me to the place that I shouldn't be in worship. And so oftentimes, we romanticize the love of God in a way that it was never meant to do. Jesus becomes my boyfriend. Where we sing praises to Jesus as the one who has sought me out above anybody else and above all. But clearly, Christ has given himself up for the church, for us, for the bride of Christ. Now, there may be a metaphorical romanticism there, but it's different than saying that on that cross, he had me in mind, where I'm elevated to the place of importance in worship. Rather, Christ has given himself up for a group called the church, for his body, for the believers in Christ, for his children. When we are freed from prison, and remember, this is what Jesus said he was coming to do. He quoted Isaiah, saying, I have come to set the captives free. I've come to open blind eyes and loosen deaf ears. When Jesus sets us free from prison, he always sets us free into a community of people for which he has sacrificed and substituted himself. That means that none of you are alone. And it means that we are born into, born again into a family. One of the great things that we prayed for this morning in celebration of the man who's getting out of prison today is just that, that God's Spirit would guide him as he is walking in newness of life and in freedom, and that we might be able to, as a body, come around him so that he's not walking this life alone. And none of you have to walk this life alone either. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. What that means is that one day we will be presented to God as spotless and clean, not being able to have any fault against us. We praise God for that. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at myself now, I don't fit the bill. Praise be to God who will get us there one day. There's this now and not yet way of life for the Christian that you've probably heard of before, where Christ has set us free from our sin, that we are walking in new, newness of life, but one day we will be without sin altogether. Jesus frees us from the power and from the presence and the penalty of sin, right? So he's already gone with the penalty. He's paid the price on the cross. He's made the substitution. The penalty of sin for the world is taken care of. He meant what he said when he says it is finished. The power of sin in our lives is oftentimes still at war. That's why Paul says in Romans that I, I don't do what I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. There's still that, that struggle, that power of sin. 
And every time we make a deal with the devil, we're still walking in slavery rather than in freedom. Remember that today, that we have this ongoing battle with the power of sin. And one day, the presence of sin will be removed altogether. And so Revelation says, and our small group's actually going to be looking through Revelation in a little bit. Revelation says that there will be a day where there's no more pain or suffering or sorrow. That that presence of sin will no longer be there. Josh Butler, who's one of our pastors in the Redemption Church, he's in Tempe, he says this, when Jesus dives into humanity, he takes responsibility for his body. He unites his life with us, he shares in our destiny, and participates in our fate in order to redeem it. That's why the courtroom analogy falls short. It's individualistic. Jesus isn't simply replacing an individual with himself. He's taking responsibility for the body of which he's a part. Jesus steps in for Israel as her representative head, for Adam as our new captain, for humanity incorporated as our rightful leader, and takes on the exile and death that was ours to bear. Isn't that good? So any of these other analogies that we come up with, they do fall short because of what God has done for us. He's not just trading one player for the other in the football game. He's not just letting one, uh, one defendant off in the courtroom. But rather, he's giving himself up on behalf of humanity What we want to do is we want to move past all of these ways that we miss this and see God's sacrifice that he has made for us. Butler has another good example of how we can get this right. He says this, let's say, for example, your neighbor drives home drunk one night and crashes his car through your fence. In the morning, you wake up, discover the shambles, and once he sobers up, you tell him you forgive him. Don't worry about the fence. All is forgiven. Now, forgiving him doesn't remove the cost of fixing the fence. It simply means you take, on your, take it on yourself. He's not responsible for it anymore. Yet either the fence will stay in disrepair or you'll pay for it out of your own wallet. Forgiving your neighbor doesn't do away with the bill or dissolve the damage. It means you eat the cost. So Christ has absorbed the cost of the sin of the world by taking on the sin in his own, by taking on punishment for sin in his own life. We get this in our stories all the time as well. Whether it's the Hunger Games or Braveheart or Harry Potter or Beauty and the Beast, we see a person who's sacrificed their lives for the sake of others. No one indeed shows love like the one who has laid down their lives for their friends. Family, my hope today is that you would recognize this truth presented in John 18. When we ask what is truth, we say this, Jesus is the great substitute, and he has become the true humanity on our behalf, so that we might, through him, truly live. Now, my sense is that many of us in this room know this to be true. But my sense is also that many of us in this room have an experience that is 
wrestling with this on a, on a daily basis. That I know the truth of the substitution of Jesus. That I've heard the story before of him going to the cross. I even get how I might be identified with Barabbas. But there's another sense where we need the Spirit's power in our lives to truly live. And that we take the Spirit's presence in our lives and we ask Him to give us wisdom for how we're missing this substitution. That we might truly live in Christ. We sing this all the time. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. Bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Chris Tomlin had that right. That in this Jesus Christ, who is our great substitute, he takes on our sin on our behalf and that he is punished on our behalf. That's where we'll pick up next week, John 19, verse 1. Immediately after this conversation, Pilate takes Jesus out and has him flogged. That from this point forward, he begins the suffering that was meant for us, that we might be able to truly live. We're going to take communion together and we'll respond with a couple of songs. Caleb wants me to remind you that when we sing Fight Your Battles, that you shouldn't actually turn to your neighbor and try to work out that struggle, but that instead we should reflect on this different way of fighting our battles. That Jesus came and he lost his life so that we might have ours. That he willingly, that he willy, willingly died so that we might live. That winning to Jesus and for us looked like him losing for sure as he was put to death on the cross. And so be gentle to one another as you respond in worship. We'll take communion during this time as well. There's elements to the right and to the left. There'll be those that are are distributing the communion elements. We take together, and by the way, if you have not ever taken communion, and this is a strange thing for you, this is something we do as a way of reflecting on this sacrifice that Jesus has made. That though we were deserving of death, Jesus gave up his life so that we might truly live. And so we take a piece of bread and a, and a, and a cup of juice that reflect the body and the blood of Christ. That he truly does pass over our sin as a result of this sacrifice from Jesus. And so I'll pray for us about that communion and we'd love for you to come forward through the center aisle, uh, first row towards the back and then coming around and receiving your communion. But I'd also like to pray for any of you that might accept Jesus this morning. We don't do this every week, but it seems that when we talk about the great substitution that there are going to be many of us in this room who may need the Spirit of God to help us with this. And so I'll say a prayer for you to accept Christ if you'd like to do that. And then I also want to pray that the Spirit of God would help the rest of us as we struggle against the flesh. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you have made this substitution for us. And we, we consider, Lord, the great costs that you went through that began with this flogging and ended with you being crucified on a cross. And so God, for anybody in the room that would like to receive you for this first time, I pray that they would at this time say this prayer. God, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I 
confess that I have done wrong against you and against others. I've sinned against you alone, Lord, but it has had impact on others. I pray, God, that you would enter my life by your spirit. I believe that you died and rose again. I believe that you came to give me new life. So God, I pray that you would enter my life at this time, that you would give me a new heart, that I would be able to follow you by your spirit. God, for anybody else in this room that is struggling in in, in some of the ways that we've talked about, Lord, either that we aren't aware of our own sinfulness, we think we're doing just fine, pray that you would convict us of sin. God, for any of us who feel unlovable today, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal your love to us in that you have laid down your life for our sake. So by your Spirit, Lord, help us to know that we are surrounded by your love today. God, I pray that you would help us to walk out in your wisdom and in your truth this life that you have us live to the glory of God the Father. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. But now they'd fall But you will never fail me Waiting for change to come Knowing the battle's won For you will never failed me your promise still stands great is your faithfulness your faithfulness I'm still in your hand this is my confidence you've never failed me You're still enough. Keep me within your love. 
is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how. Amen. Church, we love you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping. I'm going to read this. It's our benediction. A benediction is just a sending prayer that you take all the things that we've learned, all the things that we've sung, and bring them with you into the week. This is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Go in peace. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. Go live all of life, all for Jesus.